Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. So a brand new sermon series for the rest of September and into October for six weeks, for seven weeks, we are going to be talking about this subject made fearfully and wonderfully. I'm so excited to get it started this morning. Uh, through the series, it's not going to be just me. Pastor Jacob is going to be preaching as well. And we have our very own Sarah Zond, who's also going to be preaching in this series. And I'm excited about that. Uh, Many of you uh, don't know, Sarah has a theology degree. She was on our staff for a number of years. Uh, When she was on staff, she was preaching uh, in NYC, and I know she was uh, the camp speaker this summer. And so I'm looking forward, because Sarah not only does announcements, you know, with all of her glitter and rainbows, but uh, she's also uh, a gifted preacher, and I cannot wait. But Sarah's going to preach in the series, and Pastor Jacob, and me too. But I'm going to get us started this morning. This is a series that is rooted in those beautiful words in Psalm 139, where King David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens this beautiful prayer where he says, It was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, the key word there is made. Not spontaneously generated, not accidentally thrown together, not mistakenly born, but made, intentionally made. Made by the creator of the universe, the same one who created the mountains and the sandy beaches and the wooded forest. This same God, this same loving and benevolent creator has also made each of us. And this is where this series is growing from, Psalm 139. In the Nicene Creed, we confess that we believe in one God. The Father Almighty, creator, maker of all that is, heaven and earth, all those things that are seen and unseen. So it's true for us that we can say that everything that we see, all that is seen, and even some of those unseen things, all that we see was made by God including that person that you look at in the mirror every morning. Now, through this series, we want to help you answer one of the most important questions in life. And no, it's not the question of whether or not the Chiefs will be in the Super Bowl. That is obvious. It's not a question about what you're going to be when you grow up. I'm looking around. Most of you are grown up. You're grown ups. You should have that figured out by now. Maybe, maybe not. It's not a question about how much money you're going to make. It's not questions about family and friends, relationships, all those, although those things are very important. 
Through this series, we want to help you answer one of the most fundamental questions, and this is it. Who are you? This is the question throughout this series that we are going to wrestle with. Who are you? I think that this is the second most important question that we can answer for ourselves. The first and the primary and the most important question comes to us from Jesus. Jesus was gathered with his disciples at one point, and Jesus says, Hey, fellas, who do people say that I am? You guys are out on the streets. You hear what people are saying about me. Who do people say that I am? And the disciples are like, well, people think that you are some kind of prophet, that maybe you are John the Baptist or Elijah or or Jeremiah. But then Jesus asks them what I think is still today the most important question. When Jesus asks his disciples, this is in Matthew chapter 16, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? See, the most important question we can ask is, who is Jesus? Because what we say about Jesus, what we believe about Jesus, is ultimately going to affect what we believe about God. And that's the primary question. Because God is creator and maker of heaven and earth and, and all that is seen and unseen. God is the maker of all. And so it is true that you can know God from creation. You can experience God in creation. That is all true. But Jesus is the one who most clearly reveals to us what God is like. So the most important question is who is Jesus? That is, who is God? The second most important question that we are going to be talking about during this series is who are you? So how do you answer that question? This is a question that our heart answers because this is a question about self-understanding. It's a question about identity, and it's an important one. John Calvin, in his very influential two-volume series, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he opens the very first volume with these words. Calvin writes, Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. These are the two most important questions. Who is Jesus? That is, who is God? And ultimately, who are you? So what do you know about yourself? How how do you see yourself? How do you answer this question, who are you? I want to help you with that question today because if you're a follower of Jesus... If you have passed through the waters of baptism, pledging to follow Jesus all the days of your life, if you find yourself in Christ, then you can answer that question with these words. Who are you? I am loved. That's going to be the title and the focus of this message, the first message in this series, I am loved. 
Let's turn to the scriptures real quick. Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writing to the Galatians. That was this, this band of churches in a certain area of the ancient world. The Apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing a letter and he has these personal words to say. He's dealing with a problem. He's explaining it to the churches, but he gets personal for just a moment when he writes these words, starting in verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, this is a a moment of vulnerability for the Apostle Paul. Let me give you the context. Paul's writing to these churches and he is telling them about a con, a, 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 an argument. A con, he confronted another apostle and they met face to face, toe to toe. This was the apostle Paul and the apostle Peter. Now, both of these were apostles commissioned by Jesus. Peter walked with Jesus. Paul later had his call and commissioning from Jesus. They were both recognized as apostles But Paul's describing this encounter with Peter where Paul had to put Peter in his place because Peter was choosing not to eat with Gentile sinners. Now, both Paul and Peter were Jewish people, and they understood that in the Jewish law, the people of God were told they were not allowed to share a meal to sit at a table with Gentile sinners. And Peter... Recognized that was in the law, but what Peter was doing was Peter was trying to prove his righteousness. He was trying to prove that he really, truly is a part of God's covenant family by holding on to the Jewish law, even though Peter knew that true righteousness, that true stamp that you were in and a part of God's covenant family is not a matter of holding to the Jewish law, but it's about faith in Jesus. Or we could say it's about finding your way within the faithfulness of Jesus. That was how you could prove your righteousness as it were. Not that you were holding to the law, but that you had put your faith in Jesus and you were living within the faithfulness of Jesus. So Paul has to confront Peter and says, "Ah, you're a follower of Jesus. We are now embracing and welcoming. We're saying welcome home to these Gentile sinners. Of course you can eat with them. And they have this exchange. And so Paul, in explaining this to the churches in Galatia, he says, and so for me, since we're speaking of the law, he says, I, I've died. I've, I've died to this old way of holding to the Jewish law as a way of proving my righteousness. And I'm now walking in this new way of Jesus. And so he says that I have been crucified with Christ figuratively speaking, and now Christ lives in me and Christ lives through me, figuratively speaking. Paul says, now I am living 
And again, it's either by faith in Jesus or I'm living within the faithfulness of Jesus. This is the new way. And I am doing so because I have discovered that it's Jesus who loved me and gave himself up for me. So Paul could say with us what we are saying today. That if we were to ask Paul, Paul, who are you? He could say, just like us today, I am loved. And if we press him on that and we ask him, how do you know that, Paul? He would say, I am loved by the God who gave himself up for me. This is where our identity is rooted. It's rooted in the love of God expressed in Jesus on the cross who gave himself for us. We are loved because Jesus died for us. Jesus came and Jesus died and Jesus rose up from the dead indeed to save the entire world. Right? John 3.16, we all know this. For God so loved the world. But don't ever lose sight that you are a part of the world that God loves. So it's true to say, yes, that God, God loves the entire world. Jesus came as the Savior of the entire world. God wants to rescue all of the world. And yes, there is a, there is a world that God doesn't like. There is a world that's built around idolatry and injustice and immorality. That world is passing away. But there is a world that God loves, and you are a part of that world. So it's true to say that Jesus is revealing God's love for you so that you can say with us, I am loved. I find this so fundamental because truly it's my own experience. So I was baptized when I was 12 years old, and then I entered into that scary season of human development where we all become aliens, this, this period of time known as middle school. I told my oldest two boys as they were approaching middle school, just survive it, because it's awful. Middle school, man, that that early onset of adolescence where these kids that you're raising who are beautiful and sweet turn into absolute aliens during this time. And for me, in particular, middle school and early high school was really difficult. These were, these were challenging years for me. I was a walking mass of insecurity. Now, I think all middle schoolers are insecure in some way, uh, if you aren't aware of that, just check out 678. Hang out with some middle schoolers. You'll see it. I think, I think all middle schoolers are in that kind of weird time of insecurity. But for me, it was very pronounced. Because I would look in the mirror and I would see my $5 haircut and the pimples on my face and my Kmart clothes. And honestly, I would ask myself, who would ever love me? I mean, it was, I suppose all teenagers go through this, but for me, it was a constant, resounding sense of insecurity. Who would ever truly love me? That, 
I, I, I carried that wherever I went. I was a goal-oriented person. I've, I've always been goal-oriented. I identify as an Enneagram 3, and, and, and from my earliest memories, I've always been goal-oriented. I've always wanted to achieve. And in middle school, and particularly early high school, I wasn't achieving at anything. Not sports, not school, not girls in particular. I mean, I was smart, but I wasn't like top of my class. I had some athletic ability, but I wasn't, I wasn't good at any of the sports I tried. And Lord, girls, man, that was my preoccupation, and that was just ongoing rejection for me. I remember the, the first girl I asked out my freshman year of high school, and it wasn't Jenny who I later married. I should have just waited and asked her out, but... There's this girl that I went to school with since middle school, and when I was around her, I couldn't even talk. You know, it's one of those situations. But I finally got enough bravery to call her out, call her on the phone and ask her out on a date. And it's my, you know, I'm a freshman, however old you are, 14, 15 years old. I don't know what we were going to do or how we were going to get there, but I, I asked her out. And, and you know how that is, that, that very first phone call. See, now all you like teenagers and millennials, you can text and it's super easy. Back in the day, we had to actually pick up the phone and talk to a living person. And I remember being terrified. And it was so cliche. I'm telling you the truth. I dialed the number and I hung up the first time because I was like so nervous. But I finally got the number. I called. She answered. I asked her out. I gave her options Friday or Saturday night. And do you know what she said to me? I'm busy. Oh, man. I never got the courage to ask her out again. I, I didn't. And maybe she really was busy, but I think this is what girls did to us when they didn't want to go out with us. Now, it's a little bit of a humorous story, but I, I think the sense of insecurity I felt wasn't just that I couldn't get a date. There was something deeper sort of lurking within me, I felt like there's, there was something wrong with me. And it wasn't guilt because I was a pretty good kid. It wasn't guilt. It was, I think it was more shame. And you know, there's a big difference. Let's talk about guilt and shame for just a moment. There's a big difference between shame and guilt Shame is utterly destructive, and we need to be saved from shame. Guilt, momentary guilt can be a good thing. I think ongoing, long-term, unresolved guilt is unhealthy, but momentary guilt is a good thing. Guilt is the recognition that you have done something that goes against your moral compass, that you're going against your conscience. Guilt is that alarm that goes off saying you have crossed a moral boundary. You've done something that is wrong. Guilt is about behavior. Let me give you an example. I would assume, like most of us, that you value honesty. You value truth-telling. Now, I'm not going to get into the complexities because I understand that there are must-lie situations. I understand that. You know, a woman has a brand-new baby. They bring you this baby. It's hideous. It's awful-looking. Oh, you know, I understand. I'm going to set that all aside. 
But in a general sense, I think we share this value of honesty and truth-telling. So let's say that you're at work and you're in a conversation with a coworker and you're swapping stories the way you do and you start then sprinkling in a couple of white lies into your story to make yourself sound better. Anyone ever done that? I'm the only one? Okay, all right. Uh, so let's say that that happens to you hypothetically. And you go back to work and you start replaying that conversation and all of a sudden you get that uneasy feeling like, oh man, I really was making myself sound better than I really was. I, I wasn't telling the truth. And you kind of feel bad. That kind of discomfort is a good thing because it can prompt you then hopefully to do the right thing. That's guilt. And that's, that's one thing. Shame, and that's what I think was lurking deep within my soul through my middle school and early high school years. Shame is soul crushing. Shame is much deeper than that. Shame researcher and very popular author and speaker, Brene Brown, speaks about shame like this. Brene says, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Shame is utterly destructive. And I believe that Jesus wants to save us. Save us from this feeling and experience that we believe that we are unworthy of love and acceptance. Shame gets reverberated and recycled and repeated in our minds when we say or we hear in our minds those words over and over. You are not talented enough. You are not pretty enough. You are not skinny enough. You are not smart enough, strong enough, rich enough. You are not good enough. These are the words of shame that can utterly destroy a person from the inside out. Now listen, friends, if you still hear those voices in your head, though you may not even utter it out loud, know this. Number one, you are not alone. Shame is something many of us wrestle with. It is common even if we don't talk about it. But more importantly, I want you to know this, that the words of shame are not true. This is not who you are. These are lies we have believed about ourselves. We are not unworthy of love and belonging. How can I say that? Because we were created by the God who is love. The God who is love, who created all that is, created you with worth and value and dignity. So my friends, you can say with us today, I am loved. And we know this because we can look to Jesus. How do we know that we are loved? We look to Jesus upon the cross. 
And on the cross, friends, Jesus took all the guilt and the shame of the world upon himself. All of those lies that were said about you or behind your back, all those words of shame, Jesus takes that upon himself that he might take it away from us, that we can be free from shame and guilt so that we can say what the words I want you to say today, and that is, I am loved. We know that we are loved because we belong to God twice. We belong to God first because God created us in his image. And now in Christ and by the Holy Spirit, God is reforming and reshaping us into the image of Jesus. So where we have experienced brokenness and woundedness, we can find healing and a new life in Jesus. But everything, friends, is dependent upon how you respond to this. See, for me, when I was at the end of my sophomore year of high school, that's when I heard the big news, the good news that Jesus was showing us what God is like and what God is like is love. When I heard that and when I responded to that with faith and confidence and and allegiance, when I said to Jesus, I'm going to follow you all the days of my life because in you I find this love and I, I, I find this like water and shower that cleanses me from the shame of my past. When I did that, everything began to change for me. And so, friends, it is a matter of how you respond to the love of God. If you respond to the love of God with love and acceptance, then you experience transformation. You experience new life. You experience the spirit within you that can say, I am loved. But if you respond to the love of God with apathy or even contempt, then you experience condemnation. It's not a condemnation that is coming from God because the only variable in those two scenarios of responses is your choice. The love of God remains the same. The unflinching love of God is completely unchanged by human choice. God is love. God will always be love because God has in the past always been love. His love will be ever present in your life now. The question is how do you respond to that love? Jesus on the cross shows us that God loves us just the way that we are. And when we come to Jesus, we can experience a transformation and a new life so that we can utter those freeing and life-changing words, I am loved. I want us to come to the communion table in just a moment, but I want you to hear the words from the Apostle Paul one more time from Galatians chapter 2. Listen to these holy words again. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ 
And it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And how do we know that? And who gave himself for me. I am loved because Jesus loves me. And Jesus demonstrated that by giving himself for me. And so we proclaim the Lord's death, his death upon the cross. We celebrate this and proclaim this when we come to the communion table. And this morning, I want to let you know that everyone is invited to come and participate in this sacred meal with all of us. Everyone is invited. And we proclaim the Lord's death. So when you hear, because what will happen is ushers will dismiss you row by row. And you'll come down to the front and someone will be holding a basket of bread. And they will say, the body of Christ broken for you. This is the God who loves and saves by allowing himself to be crucified. This is the God in Christ who gave himself up for you that you can say, I am loved. So when you hear those words, the body of Christ broken for you, you can say almost in your head, amen, I am loved. As a matter of fact, that's the, the typical response when you're going through the communion line and someone says the body of Christ broken for you. The response is amen. And today, you don't have to just say that in your head. If you want to say it right out loud, you can say amen, I am loved. Because communion is a celebration of that very fact that we are loved. Stand up with me. And we will pray a prayer together that will prepare us to come to this sacred meal. And I said everyone is invited, and that's everyone. And so when the bread is offered, just you can say amen. You can say I am loved if you want, and, and take a piece of that bread. And then someone holding the cup will say the body of Christ or the blood of Christ shed for you. Take the bread, dip it in the cup, and eat and experience the love of God in a new way. We're going to pray our confession of sin. We'll put the words of this prayer up on the screen. And I encourage you to pray.